I, I asked for something a little less intense. Because <laughs> there's no way to follow up that intro video. Um, but thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Do I, do I know pretty much everybody from last time that I was here-ish, maybe? Cool. Um, so if you hadn't already, open up your Bibles to John chapter 17. Um, I thought it would be cool for us today to look into Jesus's prayer for the church and to see what it is that he desires for us. Isn't that wild that, that Jesus, the, the eternal word of God made flesh, had, had desires for what the church would be? And we get to know those desires and we get to try to embody them in ourselves. Uh, so that's our, that's our work today. So we're going to we're going to dig into it, but I want to I want to kind of frame uh, the prayer in its proper context, right? We understand everything better in context. So when we see uh, when we see the book of John as a whole, and I know you guys as a church uh, at, at your inception went through the book of John. We see, we see that John's motive over and over and over again, his emphasis throughout the entire book, is to show that Jesus Christ is the eternal word of God, that he's the logos, that, that, he, that he is God's breathing out of his will and his word and his intention to the earth, that he is God himself. So John actually spends a lot of time casting uh, the deity of Jesus. And so we, we, see, uh, we see in its proper context that in John 17, the, the, way, the way this high priestly prayer might, might fit into the overall context, the overall theme, the overall emphasis of the book of John, which is to show that Jesus is eternal, that he's from the beginning, that he was present at creation, that he's the eternal word, the logos, that he's the truth, that he is God himself. And that gives more weight when we consider that God himself, who laid the very foundations of the world, who knew the universe before the world was created, who entered into this covenant within the Trinity to, to save a humanity that didn't exist yet before the found eight foundation of the world, that that very same God wept and prayed and cried for us, right? Um, that's weighty. And it's brilliant that we get to read it and we get to know what his desires for the church were. Um, let, before we jump into John 17, I'm, I want us to, um, don't turn here. I want you to just listen because I'm going to jump around in John chapter one a little bit, but I want to just show how John is kind of summarizing biblical history through Jesus. It's really cool. And it matters for John 17 and we'll see how. So in John 1, this is, the, this is the beginning, this is how he starts the book. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." So John chapter one gives pretty much a summary of the history of the world. Uh, 
as it relates to Jesus. So in the beginning was the word. I mean, we're talking, we're talking even before the beginning of the world. In the beginning, the very beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. We get, we get the idea that the Jesus that is praying for his church in John 17 was the Jesus who was with God, who was in the beginning. That matters, that gives heft, that gives weight to his prayer, right? It matters that the apostle Paul prayed for us, but how much more does it matter that God himself, who saw the, the, the earth being laid, who saw the sun and the stars being formed by the breath of his mouth, that that, that God who had, has supreme context and perspective, that God who has capacity to understand and know everything, prayed for us and shared his desires for us. And so we come to John 17, and because, because there's so much, and I know that that was a long reading, and I hope you guys hung on for it, but I, I thought it was important that we just read it all, that we know what Jesus prayed for us. And I want us to, I want us to camp out on a few verses here in the middle, but I want us to see three dominant emphases of Jesus's prayer for his church. So we see here in John 17 that Jesus is praying specific things for his church, for his disciples, and that those would come to believe after. So, he, so I want to talk about three of those dominant emphases. One, that the church would be sent. Two, that the church would be changed. And three, that the church would be one. So the three dominant emphases of this prayer, that, that we would be sent, that we would be changed, that we would be one. So let's check out, let's, let's look at verse 18. Um, starting back a little bit in verse 15, uh, Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Um, so, so Jesus is saying that his, that his trajectory for his church, that his, that his heart for his church, that his motive for his disciples is that they are sent in the very same way that God sent the son into the world. He sent his disciples into the world. That matters. It's really great. So that word, that word sent, right? Um, and I, I know I know you don't really care about this, but you should. Okay, so just like for 30 seconds, pretend to care. Uh, it, it, so in, in, in the Greek, right? In the Greek, that word sent is, is apostolo. Does that sound familiar? Right? Apostle. This is where we, get our, where, where we get that word from. So that word sent, right? Sent as a missionary, sent on an assignment. That word in the Greek is apostolo. That word in the, in the Latin is missio. Does that sound familiar? That's where we get our word mission. That's, that's where we get our word missionary. Um, and, but, but we have this kind of false dichotomy that we, we take the word missionary and we apply it to people who are in Africa. But we don't want to apply it to people who are in Fayetteville. But Jesus is talking about his disciples. As you have sent me, Apostolo, as you have sent me into the world, so I sent them. This basic discipleship 101, we are sent. Jesus is praying. 
He's praying his motive. As I, as I have been sent, so I'm sending them. Um, so we see the way that Jesus prays and the way that he casts his vision for his church is that they are a sent church. That, that, that the church, that the, that the disciples and those that believed the disciples' teaching would view themselves as missionary people and not as consumers of some sort of religious product. Does it, does it feel right to call yourself a missionary? That feels wrong because we've put some kind of stigma on that. Like, well, I haven't been to language school. Right? Um, if you believe in Jesus, you are a part of his church and you are a missionary. Isn't it better news for Fayetteville that there is a huge cluster of missionaries in this room right here that are going to be sent into our neighborhoods and workplaces this week? And the church says, come on. Fayetteville has missionaries. That's good news. Can we agree? I need you to talk to me a little bit. <laughs> I'm a hyper extrovert, and if I feel alone, I'm just going to crawl in a hole and cry somewhere. <laughs> so I, I, need, I, need some, I need some back and forth here. But we are sent. Jesus, Jesus prayed the same way that you sent me, I send them. So he... So, so it's, very, it's, it's very clear that his vision for his disciples, for his church and from the very outset was, was that they would be postured in the very same way that he was postured. And how, was he, how did he posture his life? He lived sent. He lived like he was literally here on a mission to do something. Um, I, I love, that's why I love the... the uh, uh, the language that Paul uses, uh, ambassador. Does that, does that sound familiar from, from the writings of Paul? He says that we are ambassadors for Christ, right? Second Corinthians 5. Um, so um, the, the reason I like that language is because Jesus, what Jesus essentially did and, and what all ambassadors do is, do you guys know what an what a ambassador is kind of in the secular kind of governmental Somebody describe that to me. What is that? What does an ambassador do? He's, yeah, an ambassador, he or she is a representative of, of their country, right? So um, the, church, the church is not a pyramid scheme, right? Where, where there are missionaries and, 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 uh, and, you know, whatever you want to call them, apostles, preachers at the top, and then everybody else on the bottom is kind of getting, getting the trickle-down effect. The church is a kingdom, and, and the Bible tells us that we're a kingdom of priests, that we're all, that we're all working and ministering and doing the work together. That there, uh, Ephesians 4, that there have been apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers that were given to the church to equip the church for the work of the ministry. So we see that, that the church is not, is not this kind of, uh, yeah, pyramid scheme where somebody on, on top uh, is getting all the credit and, and everybody else down here, it does not matter. Like we are, we're all working together. We are all priests. We're the, we're the priesthood of believers. And so in, in that kingdom, just like, just like Jesus was sent here, Jesus sent us as ambassadors, Paul says, ambassadors who represent a kingdom. 
right? So, so the United States sends ambassadors to, you know, wherever, Germany. And, and the, the, the U.S. ambassador to Germany's job is to live there, right? They make policy and do all that stuff too, but they, they, they advise back this way. But the original job of an ambassador is to go to a foreign place and to represent their country or kingdom and to dispel the rumors and dispel the stereotypes of their kingdom and show them what the kingdom's really like. And so we send a U.S. ambassador to Germany so that they can see, oh, here's, here's how we operate. Here's what, it, here's what it looks like to live and work and do business with a person from the U.S. And so likewise, actually in a, in a very more, uh, much more robust way, we are sent as ambassadors from a kingdom that you can't see, right? Uh, in the same way Jesus was sent to represent God. Do you get it? Paul says he's the image of the invisible God. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So, so Jesus represented God in a way that, that being around Jesus explained to people what God was like. And as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, people should, when they hang out with us, when they live next to us, when they work next to us, when they shop next to us, uh, when they serve us at restaurants, they should be experiencing what the kingdom of heaven is like. Little by little. They're feeling it. They're experiencing it. Why? Because we are representatives. And we exist in this kingdom, in this earthly kingdom, to dispel the stereotypes of our heavenly kingdom. Are there stereotypes? (laughs) <laughs> like, no, we are, we are literally not all crazy. And uh, we, we, you know, we, we do not stand out, we do not literally all stand outside of, you know, your funeral with picket signs and, you know, boycott this. And we, like, we're just, we're normal people. And you know what? Uh, we love you. Um, People are actually surprised when they meet a Christian that is really loving and accepting. <laughs> you agree? People are like, I cannot believe you're a Christian. Um, that's kind of the point because we're ambassadors. We exist to dispel the stereotypes. We exist to show, to show this world what God is really like and what living in his ways really looks like. We are sent. And just like Jesus's sentness didn't, stop. It was a 24-7 thing, so is ours. And that seems like a really exhausting proposition if it's not just a normative part of our life. You are sent. In the everyday of your life, you are, you are sent. And so Jesus said, hey, that you sent me, I'm sending them. And so Jesus desires that his church be a sent church, that we believe that we are missionaries to Fayetteville, that our, our neighborhoods have a missionary in them. And, uh, and you may not be funded by a missionary organization, but you're funded through something. And God's in charge of all that money. So you're paid, you're a paid missionary, <laughs> even if you're on your welfare. The government, God's using the government's money to, to pay you to be on mission in your context. 
It's legit. You're the real deal. I just told you, you're a missionary. The Bible told us, like, missio, believe it. Live like a missionary. That doesn't mean you have to go to language school. You already know the language here. Like, just, just, just begin to live in a way that shows people what the kingdom of God is like. Um, and try to make it actually be like his kingdom and not like some of the silly ones we try to construct ourselves, right? Um, so Jesus... Jesus' desire was that his church be sent. And he desired that his church be changed. So I, I, I use that, th- that word change so you can remember it, but he uses the word sanctified. And what does that word sanctified mean? Um, somebody's got that definition. Made holy, set apart. Anybody else? Yeah, set, set apart's a really, it, that, that's kind of a familiar definition, classification for sanctification. And it is set apart, right? To be, to be made holy. So literally, I'm sanctifying this um, fine china for, not for cereal, right? So I'm, I'm setting it apart. It's different. It's, it's reserved for something different, right? Um, but the way that he says it, so let's, Let's look here in verse 17. Um, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So if we, if we say that, that uh, sanctified means to be set apart, how is it that we are set apart? Uh, how, how is it that the truth sets us apart, that, that, that we're somehow physically set aside in the truth? And I think that we have this false construct for what it means to be set apart, that it, that it means that kind of in the early Jewish kind of Essene sense that we, that we want to take, take our lives and families and remove ourselves from culture and kind of monasticize, right? Because, you know, well, that's a big word for like, uh, remove ourselves from culture and, uh, and, and kind, of be, kind of be withdrawn and not get the sin on us of our neighbors. Whew. Um, as if Jesus wasn't hanging out with prostitutes, right? So, so, so we have this false construct that, that set apart means physically removing yourself from the culture, but Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. He's talking about, he's talking about a, a worldview, a reality. There's a, there is a cognitive shift because of the truth. We are changed. Our minds are changed. There's a worldview shifts, a shift that, Happens. So think of it like this. The gospel of Jesus Christ, once it comes, is waste to our life as we know it, provides a new lens through which we see the world. We don't see the world the same way anymore. Why? Because of the truth. We, you get it? Like we were once blind, but now we see. What do we see? We see the world really for what it is. It's not a battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, right? It, we, we actually see, we have a perspective for what's going on. We begin to understand the story of God throughout human history, that, it's, that it really hasn't been just this story of kingdoms and colonizations and conquerings, and, but it's, it's really been a story of a God who lost his children to sin, and he's making every effort, even through his own blood, to get him back. That is, that is something that 
we could not see before we knew the gospel. And so the gospel provides an, an entirely new worldview. And it, it, it provides uh, a new lens through which we can see the world. That means, and, and guess what, guys? We have, we, have a really, uh, we have a really unique American way of compartmentalizing everything. Like, oh, I got my church life over here, Sundays, Wednesday nights, you know, because Wednesday is like the second Sabbath, you know. Um, and, and then I have like, I have my work life and I have my family life and I don't commingle those things. Um, but the people who hung out with Jesus in the first century had no concept of compartmentalization. Their, their religion, their politics, their view of the world were all woven together into the same fabric. Um, the Jews knew that, they, that whatever truth they believed, when you rise and when you lay down and when you walk by the way, you teach it to your kids, you talk about it, you hang it as frontlets between your eyes and as tassels on your robes. Like it affects every part of your life. But we have in American Christianity that we have said, oh we, yes, well I accept Jesus and that changes my Sunday mornings. And at best, it changes, you know, a fraction of my bank account. But it doesn't affect all of life. That would have been foreign to the people who heard Jesus say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the way that N.T. Wright says it is that the call to repent and believe in Jesus was a call to repent of all of your life that you had wrong. It was, a, it was a call to realize that you saw the entire thing incorrectly. And now there was a new and better and more radical and even dangerous way to follow Jesus. And you either accept it or you don't. And so guess what? The gospel is not something that comes and seizes our Sundays. The gospel is something that comes and shipwrecks all our ideologies, our politics, what? <laughs> the gospel comes and shipwrecks your entire worldview. And you choose Jesus's view of the world over whatever it is, instead of trying to piecemeal Jesus into your predetermined categories. That's what it, that's what it looks like to be changed. And, and that's, that's why it's tough for us to see sanctification as a worldview shift so much as a removing a society because we don't, we don't know what it looks like to stay up in here with a relationship with people, but actually change our minds about everything else and how we see the world and how we function within the world. We've got to let Jesus come in and, and wreck everything so that we can maintain relationships, so that we can maintain social interaction and so that we can see the world through spiritual lenses, through gospel lenses, so that we can actually have a, a, a worldview shift that Jesus talks about here in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So what is us? Jesus is the eternal word, right? We, we look... We look to Jesus and he sanctifies us. He gives us a new gospel lens. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you, there is no 
like, that God has, through his divine providence, preserved this book for us. This is the word, okay? Jesus is the eternal word, right? And his, his words and his teachings have, have been encapsulated and preserved. So what I wanna propose to you is that there is no sanctification to be had if your face is not in this book. And if, you, and, and if your mind is not communing with the Spirit, if you are not spending time with the Holy Spirit, if you, if you are not engaging the eternal word by means of his Holy Spirit and of his preserved written word, there is no sanctification to be had. And the only, the only thing that we know to do once we get smarter in religion once we learn the Christian catchphrases and learn how to speak the language of gospel-centered Christian America, the only thing that we can do is iron that on to our existing worldviews if we're not in the word and in the face of God getting our, getting our worldviews and our ideologies shipwrecked by him and his truth. If we're not spending time as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, having our, uh, having our minds renewed, right? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be renewed. Like if, if, we're, not, if we're not spending time having our minds renewed by the gospel in the word of God, then what we're gonna do is we're gonna have old minds and we're gonna have new language patched on top of it. And so our old ideologies are going to work. We're going to make it fit. Like, yeah, this, this is completely consistent with this. No, no, it's not. Like, no, it's not. There's so much, there's probably tension in this church over politics this year. Why is that? It's because we actually believe that we belong to this kingdom and that we have allegiance to the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, or the Libertarian, or whatever the heck it is you are. Um, we actually think that, that our allegiance lies there. We're messed up. We try, we try to iron on the Jesus patch to our republicanism. We try to iron on the Jesus patch to our democratism. Is that a thing? <laughs> Which, in, instead, of, instead of letting Jesus come in and blow it all up and say, I can't be. There's gospel issues on both sides. Um, I can't be. I can't be with either one of you guys. I, mean, I, I can be with you insofar as your values overlap mine, but there is, there is, no, uh, there is no allegiance. I can't be. We, gotta, we have to be shipwrecked. We have, to, we have to take the gospel for what it is, which is a complete mutiny of our worldview. <laughs> we got to let it do its work. We have to be conformed, transformed, rather. Not be conformed, sorry. Um, so Jesus desires that his church would be sent. He desires his church would be changed, and he desires that his church would be one. Let's look at verse 21. I can't see that clock back there, so I'm just going to keep going through lunch. You guys good with that? Just uh, 
We'll start in verse 20 so we can get the context on it. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. Who is that? That's me and you. The Gentiles. <laughs> um, verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. So we have two things there. Two things. Check it out. The oneness that he describes is the Trinitarian oneness. You get that? That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. So there's this, there's this Trinitarian oneness. That, that the church together, that the, all those who believe in Jesus as the means of salvation would be one, would be unified as the Trinity is unified from eternity past. What? Can you imagine? Can you imagine if, if the church had the kind of self-giving, sacrificial love and unity that the Trinity experiences forever for eternity? What would that look like? Maybe we wouldn't argue over petty things. <laughs> um, we can't imagine it because we, can't, we haven't experienced Trinitarian oneness with anyone. We, ha we have no idea what that kind of unity would look like. The kind of unity that Jesus describes here that he wants for his church, get this, don't forget, our context here is that the Logos, the eternal word, God himself who came and spilled his blood so that the church could be established and strong, that God is desiring these things, praying these things to the Father for us. So that oneness, that Trinitarian oneness that he wants for his church, that he desires for us, is only available for us. It's, it's only, it's, we're only going to be able to access that if we lay down everything about ourselves. Because the kind of, trini the, the kind of oneness that the, trini that the Trinity experiences, the kind of oneness where Jesus says, you know what, I'll give up my throne. What? We don't even want to give up our assigned seat in this room. <laughs> And we'll be mad if somebody comes in and takes it. I know you're a visitor, but you better know. You better know. Next time, I'll give you a hall pass this time. It's the, it's all, we're, we're only going to know that if we, if we put on the mind of Christ like, like Paul talks about. And, and we, know, we know what it's like to, to be like, you know what, I have rights. I'll lay them down for you. I have a liberty. But I'll lay it down for you. We, we don't know Trinitarian oneness because we don't know selflessness. That's what he desires for the church. So there's a Trinitarian oneness. The, the, the one he desires for, that the church will be one as the Trinity is one. But there's also an evangelistic oneness that he talks about. That Trinitarian oneness becomes evangelistic. Watch this. 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. No, stop. Read it again. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Somebody flesh out what he's saying there. I'm going to let you do the work. Because I've been talking to you so much, you guys are sleeping. Okay? What, what does he mean? What does he mean by verse 21? This is awkward. That the world would see the oneness of the church and believe. Believe in what? Church, get this. Jesus says that if the church somehow can figure out how to embody oneness and unity, that people from the culture will look at that and say, oh, that's not normal. That, I wonder, and that curiosity would spur on belief in the gospel because it's not natural that people with different political ideologies, with different race, with different class structures, with different privileges, that we would all be in the same family and treat each other like family and give up our stuff for the next person, that we'd pay each other's light bills, that we would eat Thanksgiving together with people that we otherwise would have nothing in common with, absolutely nothing, that people would look at that and say, Man, that is the way life is supposed to be. Wow. And they would want it. Right? We think we have like evangelistic strategies. When Jesus says, if you guys would just be one, people will see that and they'll jump in. But guess what they're seeing? Guess what, they, guess what they see? 90% of the time. They see, oh, check it out. Those white people going into that building, those black and brown people going into that building, those rich people going into that building, those poor people going into that building. And they say, oh, well, that makes complete sense because that's how our society works. But what if it wasn't like that? What if they were like, well, look at all the colors of the rainbow. <laughs> and, and every level of, like, from, from, from welfare to billionaire. Calling each other family. Serving each other, washing each other's feet. Man, I've got to get some of that. What, what is that kind of community? There... Jesus says that, that oneness, oneness is the evangelistic strategy. And so here's what I've gotten a lot <clears throat> recently, right? Uh, because racial tensions are like on peak. You guys got that? It's like, whoo, way up here. Um, and, and whenever I've come out and said, hey, there, there is inequitable injustice toward our brothers and sisters of color. There just is. Like, my homeboy, Sherrod, in 
uh, <laughs> like he's Indian and he cuts his beard. Like he has a magnificent beard. Whew. I mean, it's like, it's, it's the mixture of like scholarly and wizardry and like, <laughs> and it's beautiful. But you know what he posted on Facebook a few months ago? Time to shave the beard. And we, and, and every, every stinking hipster on the face of the planet is like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. He's like, you don't get it. I mean, walk into the restaurant and my, my, my daughter's with me and somebody calls me Osama. You get that? We, <laughs> the fact that I can grow a beard and not even think twice about it. Our society is not just and equitable. And so, but, here, but here's what happens when, I, when, when we speak out to those things. People say, you just ought to preach the gospel, brother. And guess what we say? I'm preaching the gospel. Because, because if in the church, me and this man do not have equal standing, no one's getting saved. Zilch. If, if the rich man and the poor man don't have the same privilege, if the black man and the white man don't have the same privilege, if the man and the woman, right, do not have the same privilege, if we're not treated fairly within the church, there is no evangelism. So if you, if you say we want Fayetteville to be flooded with the gospel, then you better be all about racial reconciliation and you better be all about class reconciliation and you better be all about justice coming on earth as it is in heaven. Man, that we would take our socio-political ideologies and try to remove them from our theology instead of like Jesus was saying, repent of it all. Repent of it all. Jesus desires that his church would be one, like the Trinity is one, and that if we are one as they are one, the world would say, I'm in. So he wants us to be sent. He wants us to be changed and he wants us to be one. So what do we do? What do we do? We've talked a lot. You guys have gone to sleep a couple times. You're back awake, maybe, some of you. What do we do? Uh, simply, right? Number one, if Jesus wants us to be sent, we live sent lives. What does that look like? Somebody tell me what, what it looks like. How's it change like your Tuesday? What would change? What would change? Your attitude, why? Yeah, you're just like, oh man. So let's imagine I was a missionary. What would I do right now? Well, guess what? You are a missionary. Like, you are. So when you're around people, like you're, the, the relationships that God has blessed you with is a means for mission. That doesn't mean you got to pass out a tract or leave them on the toilet every time you're in, you know, Red Lobster or whatever. Like, it just means, it means you, you like, live like, live like a missionary would live. Live sent. Live, 
Live like Jesus lived, as if he was on a real mission from heaven to show people what God was like, to hang out with tax collectors, and to even hang out with religious people. Oh, of all the things. <laughs> like we, we, we live sent lives, and, and, and through our lives, people that are not a part of the kingdom of God experience what that kingdom is like. Um, number two, if he wants us to be changed, if he wants us to be changed by the truth, then we'll begin to see the world through, through the gospel lenses afforded us through the word. So like, let's submit ourselves to the truth and let the truth wreck us so that we can no longer see the world through our own lenses and our own presuppositions and our own thoughts and desires, but we, we begin to lay over the gospel lens and we say, and we see people through Jesus's eyes and we see situations and we see history. We see our culture through Jesus's eyes. Um, we, let, we let the gospel give us a new lens through which we can see the world, right? That change, if, if that changes, then, then the way that we live in the world that we now see differently will change. But if we just try to change like how we're acting first, right, this is not gonna come next. Our, our lens is not gonna change just because, you know, we, I don't know, went to see Fireproof instead of Iron Man, <laughs> right? Um, not advocating for either one. Tony Stark is not a role model, right? Um, but we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna view the world through gospel lenses, um, and and if if Jesus wants us to be one, then we're gonna be reconciled to one another. And 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 reconciliation, togetherness, oneness uh, across all dividing lines and all class structures and all race structures. That's gonna be. Watch this a priority for us. We're going to prioritize that because if we are one, people will believe. They'll have a reason to say, oh, that is not like society at all. That is, that's very different. And that's actually the way it seems that life was supposed to be intended to live uh, because that's what we get, guys. In the kingdom of God, we get the life that we were supposed to be living in the first place. And we get to live it out in front of people who are desperate for it and don't even know it. And so we're gonna be reconciled to one another. Uh, so let's, let's, real quickly, let's revisit the beginning uh, of John 17, verses one through three. Like we're gonna, we're gonna see this all come together. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So, your neighbors, your coworkers, Fayettevillians, they're, they're scraping and clawing and digging to find salvation in their jobs. 
and in a football team and in their kids. Like they're drinking from wells that don't have water. You get that? Jesus' desire is that God will get glory because he will get glory because the church will do its work here. Jesus prayed his desires, a, a church that would view himself, themselves as sent and as a changed people worldview and as one so that your neighbors would believe that Jesus would get glory, that God would get glory and the kingdom would grow. Like that this, that Jesus's vision for human history would be accomplished because we just finally viewed ourselves as missionaries and that we finally realized that it's only by subjecting ourselves to the truth that we're going to see the world properly and be able to engage the world properly. And that we finally realized that if we're not one, we're nothing. We're nothing. We're not the church. Do you get it? Jesus' high priestly prayer was that the church would be one. His desire, this is emphasis. His Desire was that we would be one. And if we are not one, then we are not the church that he desires. We're not the church that he envisions. Do we want to be the church he envisioned? Yes. Like, and we have access to it. And not only that, guess what? All of you, all of you guys who feel overwhelmed with the task ahead of you, I, mean, I gotta change my worldview and my lifestyle, and I gotta like, I gotta like change my sociopolitical stuff going on. And um, do, do, do you know what? For those of you who are feeling the burden of that, you know why Jesus's yoke is easy and his burden is light? It's because even he didn't do it without the help of the Holy Spirit. You have a helper. Jesus, Jesus's vision for the church comes to fruition when the church empties itself of its uh, self-reliance and relies on the Holy Spirit. Like, let's, let's do that this week, church. Let's rely on the Spirit to, to help form us into a sent and into a sanctified and into a unified church in Fayetteville. You want that? Come on, you want that? I want that for you. Let's pray. Father, uh, so grateful, so grateful to be able to look into the prayer of Jesus for us and to know uh, what his heart was longing for in regards to his church. Let that change us. Holy Spirit, would you, would you do a work in our hearts? Not, not just let this kind of be a cathartic event where we came on Sunday morning and we feel better about ourselves, now we can go about our, our, about our week, but that you, Holy Spirit, would intervene and that you would help us bring to fruition the vision that Jesus had for his church, and it's in his name that we pray, amen.